Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. I hope you guys are enjoying this absolutely beautiful Sunday. Yes, indeed. Hello to all of our regular viewers and a big welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. We have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to kind of get straight into it. I, Donnie and I are very, very pleased to welcome to the show Ralph Godby Jr. Um, Mr. Godby began his law enforcement career in 1987 with the Detroit Police Department. And in his impressive CV, I, he served in a myriad of, of uh, offices. So he served as a sergeant, lieutenant, inspector, commander, deputy chief, and assistant chief, all in the Detroit area. He retired in 2012 after 25 years of active service. He still remains highly active in his community in both civic and community work, as well as um, working with a lot of different police associations. And in 2018, he was appointed chief of police of the Detroit Public Schools Community District. Welcome to the show, Mr. Godby. It is such a pleasure to be here. I've um, been excited about this day ever since I got the invitation. I look forward to a very, very robust dialogue today. Yes, indeed. Well, like I said, um, you came on my radar. I, I had seen you with um, interviews before with various news channels, but it was something that you said on MSNBC recently about making a, a, a link between slave patrols and modern policing that I haven't really heard many people from the, from the, the world of the police actually come out and say. So that resonated with me. It really landed with me what you were saying. And I, I phoned up Donnie right afterwards going, we have to get him on the show. Because <laughs> it is, I think this is a very misunderstood topic. Um, I think it has been, it's very easy to derail. It's very easy to politicize, which is what's going on now. Um, which is why I think you were in, kind of invited to speak on MSNBC. Um, and again, it's, it's just been a very long overdue um, subject. But before we kind of get into things, I appreciate that a lot of our audience aren't going to really understand what slave patrols were, um, to be able to even have the foundation to, to get into the conversation that we have. So I've got a couple of images. Uh, Donnie and I are gonna probably be sharing them as I'm, as I'm going through them, so people can actually see them. But if, and if people hear me mention that a chap called Athiba, he's our producer and he's going to be running the images. Um, Athiba, can you run up image one, the um, the book cover? That's coming in a minute. Well, actually, while Ephibah's looking for the, the images, so Mr. Godfrey, Godfrey, if you wouldn't mind starting us off, um, you have a very long, very storied story career in the police force. Um, what was it about joining the police that, that appealed to you as a youngster? Because you've been, doing, you've been involved with this since you were 19, if I understand. Yeah, I, joined, I, I was uh, uh, recruited and joined at 19 years old. Actually, I was recruited at 18, uh, joined at 19, and spent you know, it, all of my adult life uh, in uh, law enforcement. And ironically, it was not a career that I aspired for growing up. Uh, but once I got into it, uh, I really, you know, just took hold to it. But from a much different perspective, I was never the um, guy who was looking for police chases or writing tickets uh, because I was hired when uh, the late Mayor Coleman A. Young uh, was the mayor of the city of Detroit uh, 
Detroit's first African-American mayor. Uh, and he came to prominence on the heels of uh, civil unrest and a lot of turmoil between the black community and police in 1968. Uh, new charter uh, for the city, uh, which went from a commissioner to a chief, a civilian oversight, uh, Detroit's first black chief. So I came in at a very unique time where uh, the officers that mentored me, uh, they had a much different lens that they saw law enforcement from because they were in roll calls where uh, black uh, white officers would not stand next to them. Uh, and just for context, I don't like to use the N word, but please, uh, I, I would like to give context. Uh, mm -hmm. Officers would stand in roll call and then they would get on the road and be in their police cars and would hear white officers, if they were in pursuit of a black suspect, nigga just jumped out the car going in this direction. It was just that blatant. So my appreciation for my position was that I was a black man that happened to be a cop, not a cop that happened to be a black man. So that is kind of my career and why I'm as vocal as I am uh, about what's going on in law enforcement and how uh, and the mistreatment and maltreatment of black and brown individuals. Uh. So we will definitely pick up on the theme of diversity in yes. a minute. Um, I just got word from a producer that the first image is indeed cute. And actually, Phoebe, if you can get the second one ready too, but we'll start with the first one. Slave Patrols is up, Brian. Oh, is it? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's strange. I can't see anything. <laughs> I, I, I guess because, you know, I have the whole controller stuff, I can see it. Okay. Yeah. So basically, there are a lot of excellent books on the subject that we're going to cover today. Um, however, this, this is the one that I think was structured in such a way that I actually got quite a bit out of it. And I'm pulling some screen grabs from this over the next couple of minutes. So this is called Slave Patrols, uh, Law and Violence in Virginia and the Carolinas, written by Sally E. Hayden. Um, and it is a, a breathtaking and stunning kind of overview. If we can have the second image. So I really wanted to kind of ground this in the, the early, the colonial period. Yes, um, okay. So this, again, for regular viewers, pretty much a lot of people know that James Henry Hammond is one of my direct ancestors. That he's one that I have some issues with, but I just really wanted to read this. This is a quote from him, from a letter that he wrote in 1845 um, to a man called Thomas Clarkson. So with us, Every citizen, now when he says citizens, he is only talking about white people. I just want to be clear about that. With us, every citizen is concerned in the maintenance of order, in the promoting honesty and industry amongst those of the lowest class who are our slaves. And our habitual vigilance renders standing armies, whether of soldiers or policemen, entirely unnecessary. Small guards in our cities and occasionally patrols in the country ensures a repose and security known nowhere else. And this is in a period of time when people of color and specifically black people actually outnumbered white people in South Carolina. We can go to the next image, number three. So again, this is um, from the same book, Slave Patrol. This is about South Carolina. And I'm not gonna read the whole thing. There's just a couple of key dates. So in order to understand what's happening in South Carolina, you have to understand that the founders of South Carolina came from Barbados. 
and they brought a lot of their, you know, and they were enslavers, and they brought a lot of the Barbadian slave practices with them to South Carolina and transplanted them here. So South Car so you can probably, if you really dig into this subject, you'll understand that all 13 colonies had their variations of slave patrols that all work slightly differently, much in the way that laws in the United States work differently today um, in terms of states' rights. So basically, South Carolina gets established in the, the 1670s. By 1708, while Blacks didn't outnumber whites, there was a lot of panic that there were gonna be massive slave revolts and that there was just gonna be a mass slaughtering of white people. There was a genuine white panic and they started formulating, you know, the, the great and the good of South Carolina at the time, started formulating plans to basically keep Black people in their place so that we wouldn't be a threat. Um, and the earliest laws actually started arising around 1698. Um, and within uh, the literature of the time that, that was talking about this in 1698, there's a passage that goes, the great number of Negroes, which of late have been imported into this colony could endanger the safety thereof, meaning they were beginning to view black people as a threat. We go to image four. Yes, okay, so this is Virginia. This is to give you an idea of just how many patrols there were. So they weren't really kind of statewide patrols. You had patrols in the cities. So you had mayors and the people of the city who were bringing together these slave patrols, but then you actually had them at the county level. So, you know, they were answerable to the county administration. So according to the tithe lists, which are tax lists, in other words, in Norfolk County, Virginia, 185 patrol appointments were made between the period of 1750 to 1780. That's 30 years. That's a lot of patrol appointments. Amelia County had 50. Um, in Norfolk, the number of patrollers appointed annually shows a regular increase. In 1751, nine men were patrollers, and by 1768, that number had reached the high of 24. And the next image. Okay. <clears throat> to give you an idea of how slave patrols operated, basically from 10, about 9 or 10 of the evening, until nearly sunrise. And this is an important distinction between slave patrols and slave catchers. These are slave patrols. Slave patrollers were householders or landowners, in other words. They owned property of some description. Slave catchers didn't. By and large, slave catchers were poor whites, for lack of a better word, um, and they were basically landless. So slave patrols, on the other hand, were men of property, also women of property. While they did not actively serve in the slave patrols, women who were property owners were still expected to nominate a male, could be a son, could be a second husband, a brother, an overseer, but they had to nominate someone to actually participate in the slave patrol. And it wasn't all about slavery. Some of it had to deal with lawbreakers and vagrants and the rest of it. But I'm gonna show you a couple of articles and a couple of images from now where the word slave just gets repeated over and over and over and over again. Um, and there's also a mention of, of free people of color.
Okay, the next one, number six. Now, one thing that slave patrollers had to do that slave catchers didn't was they had to take oaths and warrants. This is beginning to become much more formalized. And I'm sure if we were to pull up the actual oath that they had to take, there are probably bits and pieces that modern day policemen and police women, or police officers, I should say, would, would actually recognize. Um, joining a slave patrol involved paperwork, meeting with local authorities to be officially licensed, um, specifically licensed as a representative of the white community. Um, and they're kind of monitored and they're answerable. The other main distinction between slave catchers and slave patrollers, there's actually two, is if a slave patrol stopped an enslaved person and beat them, they were not legally liable for damages. They could kill, they could kill an enslaved person, beat them near to death, maim them, just do anything to them, and the law would protect them. Slave catchers did not have legal protection. So if they maimed, killed, or tortured an enslaved person, and that's the slave catchers, the, ensla the enslaved person's enslaver could actually bring them to court and sue them. The other difference is slave, slave patrols were confined by a geographical area that they were legally entitled to work within. Whereas slave catchers were normally used if there was a fear from the enslaver that an escaped slave would actually try to leave not only the county, but leave either the colony or the state. So the next one. Yes, sir. Okay, so this is just carrying on from what I was saying. Patrol appointment notices and warrants almost completely shielded patroller, patrollers from litigious matters. Um, and I pulled up a slave um, oath, uh, oath. Oh, brilliant. That I am going to ask Mr. Cotby about. <laughs> okay. So litigious monsters who became angry at patrollers viciously punished legal bondsmen. But it actually was more or less set up in law that patrollers were kind of protect, were protected from the law. Next slide. Okay. Go ahead, Brian. So this is from chapter three of the same book, but this is actually from a, a, a freedman's point of view. Uh, this is from a quote from W.L. Bost, who was a former slave from Western North Carolina, who was interviewed by the WPA in 1937. Uh. And we're gonna be using language today. It's the language of the periods. Um, Mr. Gopi <clears throat> has already dropped, dropped it once, but. You, we're reading it as it is. So if people get us, I'm sorry about that. Then the paddy rollers, they kept close watch on the poor niggers. So they have no chance to do anything or go anywhere. And I really want you to think about everything that's been happening since Michael Brown. That's right. They just, well, even before then, but I'm just putting that within this time period. They just like policemen only worser, because they never let the niggers go anywhere without a pause for Miss Monsters. If you wasn't in your proper place when the paddy rollers came, came, they lashed you till you were black and blue. The women got 15 lashes and the men 30. That was just for being out without a pause. If the nigger done anything worse, he was taken to the jail and put on the whipping post. So no punishment it was deemed too harsh 
So the the it sounds like the the patrollers um, they were definitely covered by that law that I talked about the um, qualified immunity. What is it called? Oh, qualified. qualified yeah, it's called qualified immunity now. But back then, this this law is still in the books today um, in Virginia, and it's called the what is it? I I can't remember the name of it. Just that quick, it just went out. It's like a common law. Yes. And basically what it does is it protected those who killed people, mm-hmm. whether it was by mistake or, you know, because mm-hmm. like you said, the slave catchers, they could be sued, but mm-hmm. the, the the others, they, you know, right, right. And that's why I mentioned qualified immunity, because the parallels are going to be amazing as we talk through this. Con- uh, yes, it is. It really is. So I promise the next couple images are going to be really quick. We're throwing them up um, just just to show you what they look like. So image number nine, that is a newspaper article from the Charleston Mercury dated 1830. This is a very formalization of their slave patrol. Um, I'm not reading any of this. This is just up there. It's going to be put in the comments for you to be able to review. Again, not all about slavery, but the word slave and free people of color litter this. This was an entire page, a teeny tiny writing, multiple columns, all dealing with slave patrols. What they do, how you can qualify the eligibility, Uh what you're entitled to do, what you're not entitled to do, fines if you're, you know, you do misdeeds. So that's South Carolina. The next one is 1836 from Limestone, Alabama. And again, much the same thing. This is an entire page. This was no joke. These people were serious about this. Now, I have yet to see anything comparable for, say, poor whites. Um, obviously, they you know had to be law-abiding citizens, but I have yet to see anything comparable to any to this for anything other than than black people. Perhaps. Well, I mean, Frederick Douglass said it during his Fourth of July speech. Um, you know, when he he said, why do you want me to give it? He literally gave that number. There were 70 some odd um, law, 70 some odd crimes that could be done, but only four of them apply to white people. That they, There were 70 some odd crimes that could be done where it would cause an execution, but only four applied to white people. So it's never been anything comparable, but again, I, go ahead. So, I'm going to leave the last two articles, the, the riot articles. If we have time to come back to those, I will. Um, but I'm just going to say to the audience at this point, if you have any questions, if anything's unclear, if you just ask us a question um, or send us a comment on the page, we will, um, we will take those up and we will try our best to answer your questions. So, um, Mr. Gobby, what do you think of that whistle-stop tour of some quite a few hundred years. I think that context is extremely important because when you when you have the conversation about law enforcement and people are surprised to hear that I support defunding the police or abolition because the the parallels between what law enforcement started off as in the United States and what it currently is very little has changed from a foundational basis. The premise of the slave patrols and slave catchers were to control black and brown behavior, 
or control black people as property at that time uh, through fear, violence, and intimidation to protect the landowners, the slaveholders, uh, whites from the perception of what uh, retaliation will look like by free blacks. So those attitudes without discussion have really permeated law enforcement from uh, slavery uh, through reconstruction uh, up to the Jim Crow era, uh, from Jim Crow uh, to the Civil Rights Act, from the Civil Rights Act to LA um, with uh, Rodney King. And the only difference now and between uh, Rodney King is really the quality of the cameras. Uh, But ostensibly, we may not use the N-word because it's not politically palatable, nor is it socially acceptable uh, for a professional to use it in a professional context. But the treatment really substantively has not changed. If you look at the over-policing in in, in major urban areas um, where there are large concentrations of black and brown people, large concentrations of immigrants, uh, large uh, uh, concentrations of the poor and disenfranchised, which that includes a lot of uh, uh, white people as well. And and that racial construct that would even cause a poor white person that's disenfranchised to still feel more empowered than a black person, regardless of what their station in life is, it's rooted in that type of uh, uh, methodology. So if you build a police department and police departments across the country, that's the, that the, and what a lot of people don't realize, uh, Brian and Donnie, is that the first organized police departments in the United States of America were the slave patrols and the slave catchers. And we, we make reference to the father of modern policing, who's Sir Robert Peel and the London uh, Met, uh, Metropolitan Police Department and the nine Peelian principles of of what a police department is, which is really communal and community oriented. Uh, It's a self-governance type of piece, but we really have never had that type of policing in the United States of America. Uh, We give, pejoratively, we give a little bit of credence to it through community policing, uh, but a full commitment to community policing as a methodology, uh, to be totally frank, it turns into two or three officer friendlies uh, that will go to a school and uh, you know, play with some kids or, yeah. uh, you know, do a presentation at a, a community gathering. But the espoused value of the police department really is what happens in that blue and white, that black and white car with two police officers or one police officer that patrols that community responding to calls for service and doing what we call proactive policing. And proactive policing does not inure to the benefit of black and brown people. Because that's where you see uh, the, 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 the disparate nature and the two ways policing and the two iterations of policing in the United States. And without having this nuanced conversation, I, I, and Brian, thank you so much uh, for setting the tone with those articles about slave patrols. Because without that bit of context, uh, people will, you know, and sometimes not, with, not without malice but just not aware of the foundations of policing in the United States. And from the, the majority population and from a, a white person's point of view, 
when your entire indoctrination about policing has been protect and serve. And that is exactly what law enforcement is designed to do. And that's what it does for the white population in mass. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the British Metropolitan Police Service, because again, as our long-standing audience knows, I, I lived in England for 30 years. So I lived there far longer than I actually lived here. And at first, you know, um, I left here not too long after Rodney King and the, the bombing of MOVE in Philadelphia. So that, you know, that was uppermost in my mind. I was very hesitant to talk to British police because I was still traumatized by American policing. Right. Um, so I went out of my way not to talk to them. But as you said, it is a very community model of policing. And after a while, you know, after I spoke to my first police, police officer, uh, well, I should say police constable, um, they were cool. And it was part of my morning, you know, whenever I was going out and I happened to bump into the local PC, I wouldn't think anything of shooting the breeze with them. Yes. They, were the best, they were the best gossips actually <laughs> where I was living from them. And then when I came back, so it is completely different. Yes. Um, if anything, it was my Irish Catholic friends who were fearful of British police. Right. And I found that just a complete twilight zone role reversal. Um, wow. When I came back here, Michael Brown happened and there was just a, an, an endless mm -hmm. sequence of deaths yes. after Michael Brown, which was, you know, it was very jarring for me. But I, like I said, I, I'm very happy that you, <clears throat> that you did mention the, the British police. And Brian, there's another contrast that I think is very, very important because when people talk about reformation with United States policing, it is very difficult to reform it, number one, because there are 18,000 police agencies in the United States. In the UK, there are 42 constabularies. So, you know, so when you talk about reform within the context of 42 governing bodies versus 18,000, uh, that's a major, major difference. Then another thing that you have to look at from uh, policing there, uh, it's rare that police officers carry weapons, carry guns. Uh, they are very specialized, highly trained officers in specialized units that carry guns, but your everyday Bobby that's on the beat, um, your, and people don't realize cop is constable on patrol. Your cop, your uh, constable on patrol, uh, that is not the methodology that they, the foundation of policing is built on. One of uh, Sir Robert Peel's uh, Peelian principles is that the community are the police and the police are the community. The only difference is, is that the police are compensated to do what the community is expected to do anyway, which means set the, the community norms. So it's not about the police coming in to enforce law and order, but it's for the police to be reflective from a community standpoint to do what your neighborhood watch or your block club does. And it's a much different construct. And uh, it's very rare, uh, the officer involved deaths where a, a citizen dies at the hand of a police officer that is very abnormal in that system of policing. So that's why I've been a, a, a very much an advocate of looking at what is, what is public safety really? Because when we associate public safety with simply police officers, that is a very false construct. Yes, it is. Because Donnie, uh, I live in the Metro Detroit area and you go into the more affluent suburbs there's a county called Oakland County that's adjacent to Wayne County where Detroit is located. Uh, at a point, it was the fourth richest um, suburb or region in the United States. 
And you don't feel safe because of all the cops you see, but you feel safe because of the manicured lawns. Um, you don't have liquor stores on every corner. Uh. Um, and if you do, you don't have the same signage that you have. You don't see um, uh, adult magazines on the racks in uh. those communities. Um, there are fines if your grass isn't cut at a certain time. There are fines if the snow isn't removed within uh, X amount of time. So all of the things that contribute to the quality of life that make those communities safe have absolutely nothing to do with how many police they have. As a matter well, of fact, you know, it, you rarely see a police officer in those communities. Well, that that brings me to ask this question, and because both of you are given these scenarios of what's hap- what happened in the British, how it's, you know, those things can't happen here because first and foremost, we were never even given the opportunity as Black people to um, have that lifestyle. Wow. So we were already brought into a very hostile environment and to be in you know that's giving things as if it wasn't that hostile you actually gave them the opportunity to police yourself in so many words as opposed to then having somebody else come in they're more of an enforcement as opposed as, as opposed to um actually doing the whole thing not enforcement but um they 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 follow through they're a follow-up Right. In so many words there. So how is it that in today's. It, with today's issues and the things that are going on. And the fact that you gave that number 18,000 to 42. Yes, how yes. can we actually make those kinds of changes in order for it to work better for black, brown and people of white people of this, you know, the. Yes. And, and Donnie, you you have really just nailed it with your summary of how you talked about that, because we have never really been fundamentally in charge of of trying to uh, formulate what does public safety look like in our communities. Uh, and if you think about it from this way, you know, police departments talk about we want to be customer friendly and we want to follow a customer service model. We want our officers to be more uh, interpersonal. But the reality is how many industries that you go in, that you frequent, that you patronize, that you pay for, where the person that you're paying tells you what you get? You know, uh-huh. you know, I mean, think about it. Uh, police officers come into your community and they decide the enforcement priorities. So looking at Dante Wright, the young man that was killed uh, outside of Minneapolis, uh, while the George Floyd trial was going on, uh, the initial stop, the pretext for the stop was a dangling uh, air freshener from his rearview mirror. Now, if you talk to any community member and you got their input on what a um, enforcement priority is, I would bet you that not one person would say, you know, we got a real problem with air fresheners hanging from rear view mirrors. That's true. And we have given police officers so much unfettered discretion. And prior to Rodney King, we gave them so much uh, credence as to their word um, until our lying eyes actually saw that what we see is not anecdotal. What black people have talked about relative to our mistreatment and maltreatment is not just being overly sensitive. Um, you know, it, just because, you know, there was a civil rights act and 
we have different rights and things and we have neighborhoods and we elected the first black president, it does not ameliorate some of the systemic um, problems in, in, in that, that go directly to race that are embedded in police culture, that yeah. are embedded in the system the way its foundation is. And any house you build, if you build it on a bad foundation, you can do all the remodeling you like. <laughs> but if the foundation is bad, the house is going to fall eventually. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's what we're experiencing. And that's why um, we really have to have the conversation of defunding and abolishing police. But also, what is the replacement? How do you, you know, re reimagine what public safety is? But more importantly, you have to have input from the people that it affects. Oh. What, what is an what is an enforcement priority in my neighborhood? If my if my kids don't have a recreation center to go to, Brian, and they're playing basketball in the street, and then you criminalize the fact that they don't have adequate recreation, which I pay tax dollars for. And I don't have the same accoutrement in my neighborhood as the more affluent neighborhoods. So we, we, we can't even have an equality. We can't even have an equity conversation because we haven't even reached equality. How about that? So, you know, it, 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 part and parcel crime, as we see it in major urban areas and in disenfranchised areas is really a socioeconomic conversation and when you have people like uh, Bishop William Barber, the, uh, you know, the campaign uh, against poverty, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he started to talk about poverty in, within the construct of racial justice and equity and policing, uh, that's where the rubber meets the road. Because again, safety is not a matter of pol police can't make an environment safe. They can enforce laws. They can respond to crime. But actually making an environment safe, that's a community structural issue. That goes to economic capacity. That goes to um, education, uh, per pupil funding. Are, are our kids being funded at the same levels as that uh, a, a rich suburb? Huh. So if we don't have those nuanced conversations start to make those corrections structurally, and we, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I, you know, we need to take every bit of progress we can. So the um, uh, Justice and Policing Act uh, in honor of George Floyd. Yes, let's do that. But what what my prophetic warning is, uh, is that that's not the complete answer. Right. Um, no pun intended, but that's a that's a bandaid on a gunshot wound because systemically, uh, if you do not address those other issues from a holistic standpoint and recognize, number one, safety as a manner of other socioeconomic inputs, but also recognizing violence as a and particularly violence in black and brown areas as a as a public health issue, because you cannot ignore the trauma that black and brown people have been through as members of this, this society in the United States of America. Again, going back to slave patrols, and if I can make this correlation uh, very quickly, uh, there's a, a book called The Body Keeps the Sto Score uh, by Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's a, a psychiatrist, and 
he he deals with stress and trauma and there's there's studies that have shown that multiple generations of holocaust survivors uh have trauma from that has been passed down um from their uh, generationally from relatives that were actually a part of the holocaust that actually witnessed um uh, family members and friends and communities murdered they were actually tortured themselves and their descendants that were not actually in Auschwitz, they have some of the same trauma responses and trauma and carry that trauma generationally. So I don't think it's an unreasonable pre- premise to think that as black and brown Americans who have, you know, from 1619 um, until present have not always experienced in mass and consistently equity and treatment that would ameliorate our level of trauma in our communities. So if, if, if you look at it from that standpoint, um, if you have a police officer that's pulling you over and you see red and blue lights in your rear view mirror from a trauma lens, there's a trauma response and, a, and, and, the, and the stress responses from trauma are physiological. They're not always thought out and intentional. And the three responses are fight, flee, and freeze. So as a black person with a police officer in a traffic stop, two out of three don't work well for black folks. Uh-huh. Fight or flee. And if that's a physiological response to stress and you add trauma to that, then when you hear people say, well, why didn't they jest? Well, a lot of these things under stress are not simply um, complying with commands, but you have people that are fearful for their life. As a black man, even as a, a, a former chief of police of a major city, Detroit, Michigan, as its chief of police, and then I was chief of police over Detroit Public Schools, the largest school district in the state, the, and the only school district with its own standalone police department with about 250 uh, public safety and police members. And as a dressed as I am now, if I get pulled over by the police, I am subject to the same treatment or outcomes as any other black person in America. Nothing takes that away from me. Now, if I have the opportunity to identify myself and show my badge, then yes, it takes the tone and tenor down. But for the everyday person that's moving and trying to move freely in these United States, that's a different construct. And for a, a white person in, the, in, sim, in a similar situation, they don't have the same stress and trauma response because their experience with law enforcement has not been the same. So those are important nuances that we very rarely talk about. And then the police officer is under the same three stress responses, fight, flee, or freeze. The difference is we're highly trained. So two of the three, you train out to a certain extent through repetition, muscle memory, training, scenario-based training, and you're left with one, which is fight. So if you look at it from that context, you have, and then officers have a level of trauma and stress as well. Um, As a chief of police, I retired and I was treated for PTSD as well as low-grade depression. So those are two explosive, explosive circumstances that we call routine traffic stops. And there's nothing routine about it all because you have two highly traumatized, stressed entities 
clashing with where two out of three responses for the citizen is not good. And then you leave the officer with one tool in, in his or her toolbox. And now we can see it is predictable. It is foreseeable that there'll be another George Floyd. It's foreseeable that there'll be another Michael Brown. So uh. that's the importance of having this conversation and having it in a nuanced way to where we're not just saying, um, you know, white people, you're racist. Well, it's, it's, it's much deeper than that. The system has racist outcomes. Uh, and I'll, I'll end on this point to let you all interject. Uh, Freddie Gray, who was uh, 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 killed in Baltimore, Maryland, neck broken in two places. Um, four of the, I think, eight officers that were indicted were black officers. So it is not simply a matter of a black officer or a white officer alone. If you change the color of the officer, but you don't change the fundamental premise by which you, uh, your system polices black and brown communities, the results are still predictable, especially if the officer falls into a category of, you know, we bleed blue, uh, which that whole, that's a whole different conversation because you can take the blue uniform off. I can't take my black skin off. Um, You know, I digress though. Uh, But that's why we, you know, this is so important. And and again, for you all to set the predicate uh, of this conversation by talking about slave patrols, uh, slave catchers, and looking at the methodology by which police were formed in this country, um, I think we can get to a solution, even though we have 18,000 police agencies. Well, you set me up perfectly, and Donia, you're going to definitely want to add to to my comment, because as genealogists, Donia and I are also what you would call public historians. We don't just research names and where they lived. We we research the times that they lived in, because that tells us more about what was happening to them, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, I joke with Donia all the time, you know, part of our family goes back to 1619 in Virginia. So let's just starting with that one group and explaining a little bit more to the audience. So we have like generation one of Africans who are not free. People argue about what those first Africans were. I'm just gonna say they weren't entirely free. They became free, but they didn't start off that way. So they're traumatized. That, that's generation one of trauma. That's 12 generations ago for me. Well, for both Damia and myself. So you have one traumatized generation who passes that trauma down to their children who get their own trauma. So they're adding to what they've inherited, passing it on to the third generation. Now imagine that going down 12, but here's the kicker. Because you're black, you can't express anger. Can you imagine if you're a slave and you, you, or, you know, express anger, frustration, resentment, this isn't fair, this isn't just, or even calling your slave, you know, your enslaver evil yes. for, for things that they've done. You didn't have that, you had to suck it up. So we get more anger every generation that gets compressed and compressed and compressed because we're not allowed. It's socially unacceptable. We get called radical when we voice our anger and our displeasure, which is a basic human thing to do. So then people are like, well, why do you guys riot? Well, imagine all of that anger that's, that's been suppressed. Yes. 
And then you have, there's just that one straw that's the camel's black, that, that breaks the camel's back and the whole thing just kind of explodes. Well, I mean, it comes in with the, with the fact that you just said, why do you guys riot? First of all, why are we thought of as being a riot and the others are thought of as a protest? Okay. Let's just, you know, mm -hmm. on that. And then not, not, not just that, how about the fact that when you talk about us being angry, black women are angry all the time. Yes. We're, you know, we're always angry. It's, it's nothing that, 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 that we can say or do that if we are not exactly, if we're not right where that attitude is supposed to be, the, the slightest tone or the slightest change in the tone of my voice, I have now become angry. Yes. So, I mean, whereas if, if, if anybody else, white woman was to say the same exact thing that I said, She's not angry. She's just expressing her, you know, expressing her opinion. Yes. So at this point in my life, you can take whatever you want. Right. And, and, and that's where I am with mine. I'm like, you can be called me angry. You know, I'm that classic black woman who's always screaming or whatever. I, and when in actuality, I know who I am and I don't do those things. But in the same instance, I'm going to continue to fight for you know for me yes and for those around me but the thing is is that you brought up you know the things with Freddie Gray and yes. and um Dwight his name is Dwight uh, right Dante uh, Dante, Dante right Dante yeah. right yeah him and they're different to me and then there's the young lady and I can't remember where where the situation yeah, Ohio or Makaira Bryant that's her yes all of those three situations are different, yes. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, I may make people angry. I, I'm, I'm good at that. Um, I do not feel, and I think it goes back to what it is that you were talking about as far as, you know, when you really went in depth about how policing goes and things of that nature, because we actually had one person who asked the question, and I'm hoping we can get it to you. Um, but uh, I am a person that believes in, you know, you got to do your part in order for certain things to happen. So with the Bryant girl, mm -hmm. she called the police. Why didn't she stay in the house and let the police handle that? Mm -hmm. That is my feeling on that. That baby might still be alive today if she had done that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that is a baby. She's 16 years old. She's not an adult. And I am very tired of people making 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds adults. They have lost their teenage years completely. Right. Yes, that is my, that's my thought process. I feel like the stuff that happened with that young lady, mm -hmm. she was failed by so many people yes. way before she yes. got in touch with, yet she became in, you know, in touch with that police officer. Right. And whether anybody wants to realize it or not, he is going to get off. He yes. is not going to get in trouble. Oh, no, he will not. And Donnie, well, if I could just if I could not. just interject very quickly on that point, because you make it, I'm glad you brought that example because it's it's a it, it 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 frames the conversation from so many different angles. Um, as you said, so many adults fail uh, Makaira because uh, 16 years old, that frontal lobe is not fully developed. You know, at 16. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and the reality was initially she was the victim and she was calling the police or somebody called the police because she was being victimized. Yep. 
But this is where representation matters because, and then seeing the humanity of the people you serve, because you cannot serve people that you don't love, that you don't see as human. And not, and I'm not affixing that to that particular police officer. He made a judgment. He potentially saved a life. So we'll give him that. Mm-hmm. As you said, legally, he was justified in the shooting. Um, because if you go through the legal standard of when you can use fatal force by the letter, legally, he, he, he will not, he probably will not be indicted. Um, He will not lose his job. Mm -mm. Um, he will not lose any payer benefits. So let's put that in a box and compartmentalize that and park that in the garage. But I will say this, what's legal is not always what's right. True. So now from a framing standpoint, and I can say this assuredly because I've been a police officer. I've worked the streets of Detroit. I've been in a scout car. I've responded to domestic violence situations. I've responded to fights with knives and different things. And because it's my community and because I could see the humanity of the person with the knife and the person without, my choice would have been to grab the girl with the knife, even if it threatened my life because I saw the potential of two lives being saved because of my frame of reference as a black man. I've seen a family fight that escalated to that. As a matter of fact, my family has been involved in fights to escalate to that. So cultural competency, um, the seeing the humanity of the people you serve may produce a, a, a different outcome. So, Again, that's why I think it's very hard to just make this that officer is racist. This only happened because, you know, Mm -hmm. but the cultural competency, the frame of reference, representation, what you've experienced, all those things contribute to the decisions that police officers make. So I'm agreeing with you, Donnie. She she was failed on so many levels because, number one, all those adults holding cameras filming the incident if just one of them had to put the damn camera down and and grab the girl kept her in the house we wouldn't even be having a conversation about her death instead of walking outside handing her a knife and walking outside with her and fighting alongside her see these are the those are the things that i have the issue with i'm like is anybody is anybody even paying that any attention and now you got her biological mother Mind you, she's in a foster home and this is happening. And yes. now you have her biological mother on, on TV mm-hmm. crying, talking about how good of a child she is when you don't have her. And now you about to be paid yes. for a child that you didn't have. Yes. And and that that that's the part that um we have to, you know, and, and I've said this as a community, uh, we have to be mature enough to have the conversation from both both points of view. Right. And most people, you know, they try to have those conversations because I've been in them and I've been attacked and I've been told, oh, you're you're a racist towards your own person. Whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's my whole thought process. But in the same instance, I'm like, no, I'm a realist. Yes. And I I can understand and I'm I'm able to see exactly what it is. How do you miss? How can you take this out without? You know, it's like a yeah. sentence. You right. can't have a you can't have a, a, a complete sentence without a verb and a noun. It's not exactly. 
So right. this is not a complete thing if you don't do everything, if you don't look at everything that is a part of it. And then you spoke about Dr. I mean about Dante. Mm-hmm. And you spoke about the um the, the trauma that was given to those. Someone put up here, and and I was actually going to say, that's Dr. Joy DeGruy, and it's called epigenetics, and it's post-traumatic slave syndrome. Yes, yes. He got out the car. He did everything he was supposed to do, but then he decided to run. Right. Why? You know, and that, and this, all all of that Mm -hmm. has something to do with that, because I got so sad watching it, because he was doing what he was supposed to do at first, Mm -hmm. and then he changed. Exactly. Because we have, a, we have a, a heightened fight or flight response. Yeah, right. Because literally a split second decision of how you're going to respond to an enslaver meant life or death. Exactly. And and, and that that's, a, and Brian, thank you for, for, you know, really making that fine point. That is, the, that is why we have to reimagine what policing is. So I wrote an op-ed and I hope it gets published soon, even about traffic stops. And it was from the standpoint of in 2009, uh, I had taken a, a brief hiatus, retired from policing and started my own um, security company. Uh, ironically, my first client was Alan Iverson, uh, who was at the time with the Detroit Pistons. Uh, he was in the uh, 2009 All-Star Game. So I went down to Phoenix um, to support him and you know do his security when he was not doing NBA activities. So as I'm leaving the airport in my rental car, um, I go through, you know, driving and, you know, think nothing about it, having an uneventful three or four days. Uh, once I'm home, maybe a month later, uh, I get a summons in the mail for a speeding ticket because they have the cameras that capture your license plate. That, that, that took me in a whole different direction about reimagining the safety of traffic stops. Because if, if traffic enforcement is really about what they espouse it to be, which is a correction uh, for safety on the road uh, and to correct behavior through, you know, you know, types of penalties. Um, Then why are we having so many traffic stops? So if that, if that's the case, why not make the vehicle and the vehicle owner strictly liable for what happens in that vehicle and you ticket the vehicle and not the individual. And if you ticket the vehicle and not the individual, then there's not a necessity for a traffic stop unless there's some type of moving violation that would compromise safety on the road, speeding, uh, drunk driving where you're swerving in and out of traffic, some articulable visual moving violation that would necessitate some type of interdiction from a police officer. Otherwise, take a picture of the license plate and then send the ticket to the owner of the vehicle and the owner of the vehicle is responsible for who operates their vehicle. So if you take, because this is what I I noticed, that camera didn't know whether I was black or white. Uh That camera didn't know whether I was rich or poor. That camera could not racial profile me. That camera assessed the speed of the vehicle and it assessed the fine. And I learned a lesson. That's the intent of traffic enforcement. So we really need to, again, reimagine what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because if these pretext stops, they do not inure to the benefit of black and brown people. So going back to Dante Wright, Donnie, um, that hanging air freshener is the, 
you know, was the predicate for eventually a man being killed. And an officer who otherwise had a career of 26 years that uh, was unremarkable to the extent she's now in an orange jumpsuit because she used a handgun instead of a taser. But if you, if it was really about the air freshener and y'all just that disturbed about an air fresher, send a ticket to the registered owner. Dante Wright is still alive. That police officer does not stand a chance of going to jail for killing a man. That's the thing we have to really, and that's why people get concerned and scared about some of these conversations because it's going to cause us to really have to look deep down inside and stop hiding behind what's legal and start making decisions based on what's right. And I'll end it by saying this, going back to Makaira Bryant, a 16-year-old in Columbus, Ohio. The reason why I don't really spend a lot of time in the one-offs of the specifics and the nuances of one situation, I look at the aggregate and I look at the disproportionate number of black and brown people that are killed by the police, regardless of what the situation is. Because they shot Makaira Bryant and that shooting was in a split second, made a decision, articulably a reason why the officer is going to be legally justified. But Dylan Roof can go into a church in South Carolina, Uh. heal nine people. The camera positively identifies him. The police have verifiable evidence that he killed nine people. They find a way to arrest him on a traffic stop, put handcuffs on him, take him back to the lockup. And on the way back to the lockup, in a matter of humanity, get him Burger King. Get him some Burger King. So I say that to say you kill one person based on the potential of what can happen, but you find a way to humanely bring another person in knowing what actually happened, Mm. which that goes to implicit bias. That goes to so many different things that are perceived about black and brown individuals that we don't get that benefit of the doubt in those situations. So that's why we got to have it. So that's why even Makaira Bryant even with a knife, even with her raising it, that's why we still have to have the conversation, whether that officer is acquitted or not. Because in the aggregate, you don't see examples of us being taken into custody the same way that um, white people are. Uh, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, during that protest, uh, I think that was in the Minneapolis area. It was. And he literally with an AR-15 in the middle of a crowd, shot three people, two of which died, he murdered. He kept the AR-15 on his body, still loaded, walked down the street past police who heard shots and knew somebody was dead, got a bottle of water, and they apprehended him at a later date. Yep. So so, so, So it's hard for me to accept the premise of, the legality and the technical propriety of a shooting of a citizen when you these things are so clearly evident that there's two different ways of policing in the United States and they're largely based on color and zip code. Now you read my mind, Ralph, and I really wish 
I really wish we could have more than than another five minutes. This may end up being a two-parter because of what it is going to be. So I was going to, you know, I was going to tell Ralph, please stay on when we get off. Oh, I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to. Because hey, first of all, I admire what you two do, what your organization does. But I love the way you make the tie to the practical application of our genealogy. But if our producer will give us an extra five minutes. The point that I wanted to make, um, the, the reason why I was I was thinking that you read my mind, Ralph, was a lot of this, in my opinion, not a lot of it, but a good, good chunk is poorly designed diversity training, which I've had to go on so many of them myself. Mm-hmm. And the, my takeaway was diversity training is about teaching people to be colorblind, the, the I don't see color brigade, which defeats the purpose. It does. And none of, actually, my, the last line manager that I had, I worked for university, we had to go to diversity training. And I'm like, do not ever make me go to another diversity training thing again. And they're like, well, why? It's like, because you don't discuss trauma. You don't discuss trauma at all. And that's behind a lot of people's reactions, whether they're Asians or African descended or Spanish speaking people who have trauma all their own stretching from Florida all the way to California up the Sierra Nevadas. They have their trauma. Native Americans have their trauma. It's like until diversity training includes cultural dimensions, dimensions of trauma and history that is truthful about this country, diversity training will never work. It won't work. Absolutely. And that's well, that's kind of my part too. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Mr. Garvey, I just want to thank you for definitely being on the show. And I, I'm hoping that you are agreeing to do a part I two. Am. I am. That's awesome. So I said it in front of all of the people that are reviewing. So, <laughs> so I, I, um, my yeah, word. Don't, don't hang up though, but we just want to thank everybody for coming and joining us. And, you know, as always, enjoy your Sunday. Brian, do you have anything to say? Enjoy your Sunday. We will see you next week right here, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, guys. Bye. Take care.